Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. And if you are participating in kids in training today, you are dismissed at this time. For the rest of us, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We're going to turn now to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. If you're just joining us, we've been working through Mark's Gospel a section at a time. And when you find Mark 6, let's stand together, acknowledging that God's Word is holy. It is infallible, it is inerrant, it is inspired by the Spirit. And so therefore, when we read the Word of God, we are reading what He has spoken to His people. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. And He went away from there, and He came to His own hometown. And His disciples followed Him. And on the Sabbath, He began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard Him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no belt, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is true and right in all that it says. Help us to receive it and to believe it and to obey with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here's a pro tip for you if you're ever in an argument with somebody. Whether you're discoursing about politics or culture or society or whatever it is you're talking about, if If you're ever doing intellectual or verbal combat, you've all been in an argument before, but if you've ever been in some sort of an intellectual fisticuffs with somebody and you want to win the arguments, 
What you need to do is claim to be the first person that is offended in the conversation. Be the first person to claim that they've offended you. Now, you want to do this for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you claim that you're the one who's being offended in this conversation, it immediately puts them on the defensive. It makes them the bad guy. You want to do that. Make them the bad guy. Second of all, if you claim to be offended, then you're moving out of the realm of logic and into the realm of feelings and emotions. And it's very difficult to launch an argument about somebody else's emotions and feelings. And so you no longer need any facts. You no longer need any good arguments. If you're the one who's being offended, it's now become about your feelings rather than what you're actually talking about. And, and third, the third reason you want to claim to be offended first is because it's unchallengeable. How can they argue back with you about whether or not you've been offended? It's an unchallengeable proposition. You've offended me. What are you going to do about that? You can't do anything about that. You can't tell me I'm not offended. And so if you're in an argument with somebody, being offended is like, it's kind of like in baseball, starting off every inning with a man on base, right? You've already got the advantage. It's like in football, starting every quarter with the ball on the 50-yard line. If you start off being the one who's offended, I guarantee you will have more success in your intellectual arguments with your interlocutors. Now, there's a problem with that, obviously. That's the oldest trick in the book. And of course, I'm being more than a bit facetious here, right? Everybody gets that? Being a little bit facetious here? I'm not saying that there aren't things that we should be offended about. Of course, we should be offended. We should have tender consciences sometimes. There are reasons why we might want to be offended. There are real offenses. I'm not saying that there's not. There's a lot of public discourse today that is gross and vulgar and incivil. And when those things come about, of course, they do actually offend us. But the problem is we live in an age where being offended actually is the strategy to win the day. I think we sort of realize that. And it's nothing new. In fact, it's a very old strategy. It's a very ancient strategy to be offended. You've offended me. I'm offended. And that's what we see here in the Gospels in Mark chapter 6, the hometown of Jesus, his own synagogue. This should be a home game for Jesus, this sermon that takes place in Mark chapter 6 in a synagogue, and yet the people are offended by what Jesus has to say in verse 3. Now here, pay attention to the context of what's been happening overall in the Gospel of Mark because once again, we find that this is a significant moment for the ministry of Jesus. You remember, he's already offended the Pharisees. Remember this? Jesus had a couple of encounters with the Pharisees. Those were the religious elite of the day, the leaders. Jesus offended them when they got into some disagreement about the Sabbath. Jesus had done some healings on the Sabbath. They weren't okay with that, and Jesus offended them. Last week, or was it two weeks ago, we saw Jesus also offending the Gentiles too, because remember, Jesus goes over into Gentile territory, and he casts the demons, the legion of demons, out of the poor man who's been oppressed. And what happens? The demons, remember, they take a suicidal plunge off of the cliffs. Remember this? And what happens then to the people in the village, they actually, they're bothered by this. They're disturbed by this because Jesus, presumably, has just ruined 2,000 head of hogs, and that's a lot of money. And so what do the Gentiles do? They send him away. They say, leave our territory. And so if you're tracking, if you're keeping score, he's been rejected by the religious elites and then also the Gentiles. And I think we saw once too, didn't we, 
that even his family were concerned about Jesus. I think that was back in Mark chapter 4, although I could be mistaken. And so what we're seeing here is this pattern carrying on now. That everywhere Jesus goes, there's mixed results. Sometimes people hear, believe, and get saved, and their lives are transformed forever. And sometimes people are offended. They don't want to hear anymore. They've had enough. And so here's the main idea today. We're going to talk about the fact that Christianity is sometimes, if we're honest, offensive to people. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with the message that we bear. We're Christians and we bear the message of Christ. Our Redeemer, our Lord, was sometimes rejected by men. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to divide this passage into three parts. We're going to look first of all at how Jesus himself was rejected. So we'll talk about the rejection of the Messiah. And then we'll move on to talk about why that might have taken place when we look at the rejection of his message. That'll be number two. And then third, we'll make it practical for our own lives and talk about the rejection of his messengers, which, which would be us. So if you close your Bible, let's go ahead and get those Bibles right back open because they're going to work through this text. And I, I think what I hope is a, a somewhat of a logical manner here. So first of all, this the rejection of the Messiah. Let's go back to verse 1. He went away from there. Jesus did, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So Jesus is preaching here in his own synagogue. This would have been the synagogue that he grew up in, okay? Should be a home game for Jesus. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Let's go ahead and pause there. Imagine if you came into the church today. And somebody rushed right up to you and met you at the door and said, whoa, hey, the pastor got stuck in the snow. We need you to preach today. Could you do it? How many of you would be like, put me in? How many of you would be like, no way? So maybe some of you grew up here at Gospel Fellowship. In fact, I know a lot of you grew up in this church. And if you were to come up here and stand where I'm standing right now, you'd be looking out at what I would hope would be a sympathetic audience, you would think. Because you grew up here. Like You look out and there's one of your aunts. And, and you look out in the back and there's one of your neighbors. That You live in the neighborhood with this person. And, and over there in the third row, there's somebody that your kids go to school with. And over there across the way, there's somebody that, because you've been here forever, you went to Sunday school with that person and now you've both married people from the same church and and look, you've grown up and you're raising your families together. Some of you, if you stood up here in the pulpit today and you had to give the message, sure, it would be intimidating, but you'd be looking out, broadly speaking, to, a, to an audience that is very sympathetic to you. They love you. They care about you. You're their boy. You grew up in this church. Wouldn't be that bad, right? And so here's Jesus, and he's preaching in the very synagogue of his own hometown. This should be an easy one for the Savior. This should be a receptive audience. They should be cheering for him, so to speak, as he delivers the message on this Sabbath day. And in fact, actually, look at the reviews. What do they say about Jesus? Let's go back to the text. What do they say? Well, it sounds pretty good at first. It says, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And so they're acknowledging there. They have to acknowledge this. They have to acknowledge that what he's saying is wise. They call it wisdom. They don't have a problem with his facts. 
They don't have a problem with the scriptures that he's citing. They don't have a problem with his reason. In fact, the people there in the synagogue that day, they acknowledge that what he's saying is wise. Sounds good so far, yeah? Go a little bit further. How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're not disputing at all the factual matter of Jesus' power. Nobody's claiming here that Jesus is using Jedi mind tricks to heal these people. They've seen it. They've had enough evidence now that they cannot dispute that what Jesus is doing is mighty works. Now, I just want to pause here, and this is a little bit of a a digression from the main point. But we've all probably seen television healers before, faith healers, right? Have you turned on the television and saw faith healers doing their thing before? You know what I'm talking about. And, And here's the thing about that is that Most of the quote-unquote miracles that you see by these television evangelists, they're what we might call non-falsifiable miracles. In other words, I can't prove whether or not they're true. I also can't prove whether or not they're untrue. It's neither way I I can get a a logical discernment on what's happening here. Okay, because what do they do in, in the television evangelists? A lot of times they're healing things like headaches or achy backs or this or that, but you you. How would you know if you're the audience? You can't falsify that. He's claiming he did it. Okay, well, how can I disprove that? But here's the thing. When Jesus heals people, these are not non-falsifiable healings that Jesus is doing. When Jesus is healing people, it's absolutely evident to the eye that what he's doing is real because think about the kinds of people Jesus is healing. Lepers, right? Skin conditions dissipating right before their very eyes paralytics, crippled men whose bodies are straightening up and strengthening right before their very eyes. Remember the guy who had the withered hand? We talked about him a couple chapters ago. I mean, picture this guy with like a hand crushed by a tractor or something, and Jesus restores this withered hand right before their very eyes. So these healings could not be denied. They're not like the faith healer on TV kind of healings that it's like, well, how could anybody know whether or not that's real? These things are legit, and the people in the synagogue have to acknowledge, in fact, they do, that these are mighty works, right? Everything's good so far, except we get down to verse 3, and here's what they say about the Messiah. Look at verse 3. Isn't this the brother of Mary, I'm sorry, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. There it is, offense. They were offended. The Greek word, you probably already know this word, is skandalizo, which sounds a lot like the word scandal. Okay? And the word scandal actually means, in the original language, to cause somebody to fall, to make them trip. They stumbled over it. They fell on their faces. They were offended, put off. And we shouldn't be too surprised at this, should we? That despite the evident power of Jesus and the clear wisdom that he is speaking, that he is rejected anyways because that's exactly what the prophets foretold would happen to the Messiah. It's exactly what the prophets were saying all along about God's Redeemer to come is that he would be a man who was rejected and despised. In fact, let's do a little Bible look up here. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 8, the the passage that David read for us a moment ago. 
Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 tells us that this is going to happen. It says, He will become a, a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to many inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken up. So there it is. Isaiah is actually using that same language of stumbling, falling, tripping over the message. Isaiah said it was going to happen, right? Isaiah 53, if I flip ahead a little bit further, you know this passage is a very famous passage about Messiah. It says in Isaiah 53, 3, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men, men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This was foretold this would happen. All right? This was foretold. Peter picks up the same language of Isaiah 8.14 and he quotes it. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so Peter takes Isaiah 8.14 and he applies it to Jesus and he said, This is why this happens. That wherever the gospel goes, some people are going to get saved and other people are going to be offended by it. They're going to trip and fall on their face. So let me, just, let me just ask this. like, Jesus is the most loving person that ever lived, right? Yeah? Jesus is the most clear preacher that has ever preached. Jesus is the most wise prophet Whoever spoke the word of God, Jesus is the most powerful man to ever stand two feet on this planet, and yet he was rejected. So what should we hope for ourselves? Better than that? Are we going to get better than what Messiah himself received in being rejected, even his own home church? So let's dig in a little bit further and try to figure out why they were offended. Why were they offended by by Christ. So let's go back to our main text in Mark chapter 6. Let's see if you can dig in and see what it is that offended them on this occasion, despite the fact that they acknowledged his wisdom and his mighty power. Look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Now, obviously, part of the very fabric of this text is that uh, the old proverb is true that familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that phrase before? Familiarity breeds contempt. Basically, it's the idea that, that like, the more you know somebody, sometimes they end up rub rubbing you the wrong way. Okay, you've had that happen at work or family relationships. The more you know somebody, eh, sometimes they rub you the wrong way. And so we can understand here on a very surface level just the way human beings work. That's if you were to see Jesus preaching in the synagogue and you happen to grow up down the street from Jesus, there's probably something deeply ingrained in, in human relationships that would make you want to say, I don't think I want to worship that guy as the Messiah. I knew him. We were in third grade together. He used to cut through my backyard, right? Think of somebody in, in third grade that you can remember. Can you think back to third grade? Can you think back that far? And supposing that this person that you sat next to in third grade class was now gaining a religious following, how inclined would you be 
to want to join the following and beginning worshiping that person that you grew up with. Not so much, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. But I think there's actually something deeper than that running through this text that clues us in as to why the message of the gospel is sometimes so offensive, even when it's preached with clarity and wisdom and power. So here's where I think the clue to this text is. It really opens up for me down in verse 12. Let's jump down to verse 12. So Jesus, what happens here is that Jesus sends out the disciples. and He's going to give them apostolic authority to go out to do preaching and healing, even as he has done preaching and healing himself. And so look at verse 12. It says this, So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. See that? Now, is that an actual transcript of their sermons? Is that what they did? They went out and they just went, you know, stood on the soapbox and said, people should repent. Is that, is that what they said? Or is this a summary of their message? What do you think? A summary of their message. The basic gist of their message was that people should repent. Now, I, wanna, I, I don't want to go over this too quickly. In fact, I want to pause and linger here and just think about the set, that summary of their message. Let's take it word by word. Let's go that slowly. People. That's general. That's universal even. You're a people. I'm a people. White people are people. Black people are people. Asian people are people. Rich people are people. Poor people are people. Straight people. Gay people. People that use Mac. People that use Windows. people that speak this language, that language, people that have this political opinion, people that have that political opinion. Here's the idea. People is very general and universal. And there is no escaping that category. There are no exceptions to people. Okay? So the religious are like, whoa, that includes us. And the proud are like, yeah, that includes us. And so since Jesus and his gospel offers no escape route, there's no exception clauses, every single person in the room this applies to, it begins to be a little bit like standoffish, if you know what I mean. Like even me? Yes, even you, especially you. All people. What? All people what? Should, next word. Should is stronger than can or may. If I say people can repent, I'm talking about possibility. It's theoretically possible for you to repent. People can repent. You have the ability to repent. If I said people may repent, I'm giving permission. May I use the restroom? Yes, you may. May is a word of permission. But should is stronger than that, isn't it? Should is obligation. Should is ethical. Should is moral. And the very second you start telling people what they should do... People tend to be abrased by that, right? Third word, repent. There's the dagger. Repent means you're not okay. Repent means something has gone seriously wrong. Repent is a judgment and a warning, but it's also an open door, isn't it? Because the very nature of repentance means that there's another way. There is an escape. 
All people are under this condemnation and they're obliged to do so, but repentance, by very definition, is a door of escape. But the moment you start telling people they need to repent, the moment you start telling people that spiritually they're not right with God as they are, that they're not righteous, that they're not just, that they're not good, they're not better than average, whatever it is they think they are, the moment you start telling people to repent, people get abrased. And so there's no doubt in my mind that it's the very heart of the message that Jesus is bringing to the people that is at the very root the offensive nature of his ministry. It's this message of repentance. You're not okay without him. So let's go on to the messengers then because it's up to us to proclaim this message. Let's skip back up to, uh, to verse 11. So what happens in this text is after Jesus is rejected and ends up ironically offending the very people that he probably cares very deeply about in his own hometown in his synagogue, it says that he went about among the villages teaching. And in verse 7 it says he called to the twelve and he began to send them out two by two as well. And he gives them authority over the unclean spirits and he charged them, I'm, I'm on verse 8, to take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bag, no bread, no money in their belts. Now that's kind of strange right there. Let's pause on that. Why does Jesus send out the apostles ill-equipped for the job? Because they're going to be ill-equipped. They can't actually perform the work of conversion. And so Jesus is sending them out in a ministry of imitation of his own ministry. There's to imitate Jesus. Jesus was poor. You're going to go out then without any supplies. Jesus depended fully on the Father's provision and the Spirit's power. So the apostles, they need to go out and depend and trust in the Spirit of God's work as well. So the apostles are sent out really quite ill-equipped, but only because that being ill-equipped is going to cause them to depend and to trust in God who can himself actually do the work. But So well, here's what Jesus does. He says, and now let's look at verse 11, if... Any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus actually prepares them for the contingent possibility that sometimes they're going to get chased out, right? Sometimes they're going to receive you. And the people that hear the gospel are going to receive it for what it is, very good news. The gospel is actually good news, right? Gospel fellowship? Like we named our church after the gospel. It's good news. But sometimes, and you need to be prepared for this, you need to be emotionally prepared. You need to mentally gird your heart for the idea that not everybody is going to receive you like a ticker tape parade. And so when this happens, if and when this happens, you're not going to quit, okay? You're not going to panic, you're not going to pout because they rejected you like a big baby and start crying. You're not going to start demanding your rights and talking about how they've offended you because you've offended them. Instead, here's what you do. You shake off the dust off of your feet and you move on. And you offer the gospel, that good news message, to the next person in line. And you keep going. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to shake off the dust of your feet, not... Actually, imagine literally doing this. Take off your shoes. You're walking out of town. 
click them together a little bit, shake off the dust of your feet. And it says here in the, the bottom of verse 11, as a testimony against them. So what is testimony? Testimony is a legal term, right? Testimony isn't when you're the judge. The judge doesn't give testimony. The jury doesn't give testimony. Who gives the testimony in the court? The witnesses. Okay? So even as they reject you and you're, you're knocking off the dust on your feet, you're not judging them. That's the judge's job. You're not God, for goodness sakes. You're not condemning them to hell. God does that. God does the judging. But you are simply giving testimony. And as you knock the dust off of your feet, what you're saying is simply this. All I am is a witness. And I met a person in my life who loved me more than I ever dared believe that I could be loved. He took my guilt away. He took my sin away. took my shame away. Gave me a purpose. Gave me a mission. Gave me a new heart. Gave me absolutely everything I ever needed. And I'm simply testifying that I offer him to you. Receive him and do with him what you will. Reject or accept. That's between the Spirit of God and you. But as for me, I testify to the goodness of my Redeemer. Fair enough? Now before we wrap up, I want to offer just a couple of corollaries here to the main argument. Corollaries like a, like, like a side argument in addition to the main. So here's a couple of corollaries for us that I think would be good to keep in mind. Here's corollary A. A. If everybody rejects you all the time, if everybody rejects you all the time, might not be the gospel that you're actually offering. Could be that people reject you all the time because you offer it in a way that seems like a jerk. You ever see a Christian that preaches the gospel like a jerk? Could be that you're not offering them gospel hope. It could be that you're offering them more legalism. And so you're surprised that they don't receive the message as good news because you haven't actually offered them the gospel. You've offered them just yet another form of pharisaical legalism. Don't be surprised if everybody rejects you if all you offer a person in chains is more chains. So if you find that you're sharing the gospel and everybody 100% of the time rejects you and your message, it might not be the gospel that you're offering. Some people should think of it as good news. Here's the other corollary. This is corollary B. If no one ever, ever rejects you, that's probably not the gospel either, is it? If you ever see a preacher on television or otherwise and he's become the darling of the media. Okay? His books are in Walmart, and Oprah Winfrey loves this guy. And nobody ever has a bad thing to say about said preacher. He's probably not preaching the gospel. Okay? He's probably giving pop psychology or pep talks or TED talks or encouragement messages or cheerleading sessions, but he's probably not preaching the gospel. Because if everybody all the time loves you unequivocally, that's just not the biblical gospel because the gospel does demand repentance at the end of the day. Okay, Does that make sense? We should get mixed results because that's what Christ received was mixed results. Now, I want to conclude on a positive note here today because we are talking about rejection. 
But let's conclude with something very positive. And the passage actually ends on just that hopeful note that we were looking for. Look at verse 13. So what happens? They go out. And they preach that people should repent, verse 12. And 13 it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so it turns out that this this apostolic mission was successful, wasn't it? Because good was done at the end of the day. And so I just want to encourage us as, as Christians today, we're living in strange times. It used to be that in the United States of America that Christianity was, if not assumed, at least it was embraced. Now things are changing quickly beneath our feet. We're noticing the sands of culture changing underneath us, right? You all feel that? Feel that? But no matter whether we're embraced or rejected from this point going forward, we must never give up hope because the gospel truly does change lives and some people will find themselves transformed even as we offer them the hope of Jesus Christ. Okay? So here's a couple of verses. One I gave to Brother Dale as a charge for his installation service today. Let me read it again. It's Galatians 6.9. It says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In due season we will reap if we don't give up. So don't give up. You keep going, don't quit, and you will reap a harvest at the end of the day. In due season. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it will come. He says the same thing to the Thessalonians. He says, As for you, brothers, do not weary and doing good. And one more time in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our labor is not in vain because we want to do your work. Lord, if if people are rejecting us all the time because it's us and because we have mean faces and we don't have tears in our eyes when we preach, then Father, we repent to you once again and ask that you would give us soft hearts for the lost. And Lord, if everybody loves us all the time and accepts us unequivocally, then Lord, we apologize for not being clear enough about the demands of gospel repentance lest we die and be condemned to hell. Help us to be clear and Father, we trust that your spirit would do the work. We don't need stabs, we don't need bags, we don't need bread, and we don't need two tunics, but we do need your spirit, Lord. Give us of that grace, and we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our final hymn. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.